And turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 14. We're going to add a little punctuation to Scripture this morning, so we need to talk about that a little bit. It's difficult to, to put punctuation into the Hebrew or the Greek uh, because the original language lacks a lot of it. And uh, one of the hard things to add is quotation marks. Um, not, not the normal quotation marks, like uh, he said, quotation mark, I'm really tired. Those are usually pretty easy because in Hebrew, um, it says he said, and then we can just kind of figure out what's next and put quotation marks around it. Um, it's the other kind, the kind when we use quotation marks to uh, create some ironic sarcasm. You know, like a sister might say of her older brother, oh, you're so smart. That kind of, that, that kind of quotation mark is very difficult to do in, in the Hebrew. In fact, it's difficult to do in the English. It's done poorly all the time. This is a pet peeve of mine. So just to kind of give a lesson as to how it's done well, we'll look at how it's done poorly. Um, here's, Wayne, if you can call up a, uh, the first slide. Uh, well, the next one, I guess. This here, drives safely. Here's another one. It says, sorry we do not have Pokemon cards. It's a vending machine behind it. But when you do it with quotation marks, it actually sounds like you're not sorry. Sorry, we don't have any Pokemon cards. <laughs> like, I got the last Pokemon cards. Sorry. That's how it sounds. Here's another one. Now, this one I don't even know what to do with. If you're under the age, the age, and then 14 only has one of them, um, you need to ride with an adult. You, you know, people, we just use it for emphasis in these situations. It's like, you know, on email, when you underline, bold, and italicize something, and you want to make it even harder, you just add quotation marks, I guess. Here, here's another one. So are you really getting your oil changed? Like, you bring your car here. By the way, if it's being advertised on the back of a pickup truck, it might not actually be oil that's getting changed. All right, a couple more. Your refuse is going to be picked up on Friday. Here's another one. I don't even know what to do with this one. Is it a real fire alarm or isn't it? They just put quotations around a fire alarm. Okay, one more, I think. I think we have one more. Now, you can't read this. This is a Mother's Day card, and I'm going to read it to you. It's from a mother to her mother-in-law, to her husband's mother. It says, you were the one who held his hand when his life had just begun. The one who taught him everything, who raised such a loving son. <laughs> All right? It says, you were the mother he turned to with his questions and his fears, the person who was always there to guide him through his years. I am the one who took his hand to walk with him in life. Don't buy cards like this. Don't do this. Right? I am the one who took his hand to walk with him in life. The, the one you lovingly embraced and welcomed as his wife. I don't know what, if this is like a, if she really hates this lady. I am the one who is grateful now for the job that you have done, blessed with a wonderful husband, the man that you call your son. This is done poorly. These are all poor examples, do not do these, of how to 
add quotation marks. Because when you're not trying to quote, quote text, if you're not trying to translate verbatim language on text, you're adding sarcasm, like kind of ironic sarcasm when you do this. Well, it's very hard to do in the Hebrew, and the translators will almost never, I want to say never, I've never found it that I can recall, they will almost never add ironic, sarcastic quotation marks because it's a gamble. It's difficult to know interpretively what is the narrator implying with the word. But today, it's left. It's left to the expositor sometimes to draw the irony out, not the translator. And so today we're going to look at a few of these kinds of places where the irony comes out of the text in the life of Samson. And we're going to do that through uh, Samson, chapter 14. Uh, i got to get there now. And we're going to move fast today. Uh, we've got to do 14 and 15. And we're going to just kind of um, really just walk, progress right down the text, step after step, and kind of deal with things as they come, and then kind of try to maybe wrap up a big idea at the end. So there's going to be little lessons being taught along the way, and then uh, hopefully um, something that kind of has the whole text in mind. By the way, I've been thinking about what's a good way to think of Judges and Samson. Imagine it is the comic book of Scripture. It's so over the top and in living color, and, um, and boys love the book. It's, that's what Judges is. It tells stories in epic fashion. And so today, you're going to be re- when we read Judges, you're going to see things that are over the top. And it's, it's, I think the narrator is enjoying kind of bringing you into a comic, um, a Marvel comic. I mean, Samson would be one of those kinds of, Off-handed heroes, wouldn't he? All right, let's read uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. That right there, the right one, that's one of the first places where I would say, She's the right one for me. He he hasn't actually even talked to her. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked to the woman, and he liked her. You see at the end, you know, she's the... She's the right woman for me. And at the, at the very end of that reading, you're like, this is so male, you know. And by the way, after he got to know her, she was nice also, is what the text says. She's the right woman for me. And then he, later he's like, score. She has a good personality too. That's, that's Samson, people. This is, 
This is who we're dealing with here. Well, there's something uh, really significant that happens in the fourth verse, and I, I, want, I want to kind of bring it out here. There's two things in this, in this section of the reading I want to bring out. The first is in the fourth verse, you have this parenthetical statement. Remember I said it's difficult to add punctuation in Hebrew. Something like a parenthesis. You can imagine the translator spending a lot of time over these two little things. Do we put these in the text? Because it's, it, it, it couches the language in a special way. But what this is, this is very rare in the Bible. When the storyteller actually stops telling the story and kind of peeks around the curtain to the listener and actually talks to you. That's what he's doing. So he's telling the story about Samson and the woman from Timnah and his parents. And then he does this. By the way, this is what he's doing. He's saying to the reader, by the way, his parents have no clue, but God's really like orchestrating the whole thing. Okay, you got it. That's what he just did. And when that happens, that's like a big deal. This is a big deal. We sh- this is story shaping kinds of stuff. You read the Bible, you will very often find yourself, and for a young reader, I'm, I, I feel your pain in the sense of the Bible very rarely gives commentary on itself. And so you're reading in the book of Kings and you're like, is God happy with this person or mad at this person? And it, it takes a lot of context and study sometimes to be able to have the boldness to give a parenthesis. But it's been given to us. And then there's another thing that I, I, want, I want to show you. It says in verse 6, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The, the, the kind of the Hebrew uh, is really more like the spirit of God rushes into him. That's, so, that's better. It should say that. The spirit of the Lord rushes into him. And, and it comes into him, and that's when he pulls apart this young lion like you or I would pull apart a goat. <laughs> it's over the top, people. It's over the top, all right? It's a comic, Okay? But the Spirit of the Lord, he's supernaturally infused with the power of God so that he just kind of rips this lion to pieces. All right? And I think, by the way, if you're trying to build who Samson is, I think he's always a tough guy. He's always a tough guy. But then superhuman, supernatural power comes upon him on particular occasions that kind of transform him from tough guy to heroic legend. Okay? That's what's going on. Let's keep reading. 8 to 14. Sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. It was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and Samson made a feast there, as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given thirty companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give an answer. Now, I think here is another, there's another kind of quotation in this text. He's given 30 companions. Okay? These are not his friends. They're Philistines. There's 30. It, it sounds like a cohort of bodyguards is what it 
many scholars actually think it is. In other words, does Samson already have a reputation of being a little uncontrollable? Is there concern about if he has a little too much to drink, what he might do? So he's kind of granted 30 companions. There's no friendship here. There's, in fact, you'll find there's serious hostility between these 30 people, these 30 men, and Samson. There's no, there's no love that's lost here. I mean, this is, they're not really companions. They're, they're kind of your escorts uh, in a very physical, military sort of way. But what I want to focus on in this section of the reading is this lion carcass issue. Samson's walking along the same path on the way down to Timnah, and he comes across the shredded lion carcass that's sitting there all pussed up and maggoty and fly-ridden and bloated like roadkill. And in it, he sees bees flying in and out. And Samson thinks, score, honey. And he reaches into this thing and he pulls out honey. Like in our house, we have the five-second rule. All right, people? I mean, it's just disgusting. This is disgusting. It, and, I, you know, sometimes when you don't understand, like, the ancient world, you just kind of go, I guess people just reached into bloating dead carcasses all the time to eat honey. What they find there? Just, like, like, it's like a bonus. I don't think people did this. I don't think people do this. And in fact, no good Hebrew would do this because this is ceremonially unclean. Hebrew, this is not, you know, forget the Nazarite vow never to touch anything dead, right? Just among the, the regular Hebrew community, you could not handle death like this. And anything that did come into contact with it became unclean. I'm not talking like you kill a chicken to eat a chicken, but the kind of festering carcass death that we're looking at, the roadkill death, you can't have that. That can't be in contact with you. There is a sense here that to the Jewish readers reading, they're watching Samson becomes unclean. They're seeing someone who has no regard or knowledge or care for the law of God. And in fact, it's painted in such a way that you feel like maybe he doesn't even know. Because if he was, if he was really just breaking a law and being somewhat sinister about it, you might it's a little surprising to see him go and make his parents unclean as well. Right? He sees his parents and he says, hey, have some honey. That, doesn't, that seems exceptionally sinister if he knows. Uh, what seems to me to be the case is because the story is really a story about culture. It's about the culture that would build or bring up a Samson the way he is. This is more of a story of saying they've lost touch with God's instruction. If you are... If you are in the tribes of Israel, reading the record of, of the judges, you'd walk away going, do these people know what it means to be Hebrew? And at a spiritual level, I think this, this image, okay, this image of Samson reaching into this line and drawing out honey, to me, this typifies his life. If I was a great artist and I was commissioned to make a stained glass window for a cathedral, on the judge of Samson. It would not be Samson pushing the pillars of a Philistine temple down. It would be Samson elbow deep in the rotting carcass of a lion drawing out honey. Samson is the kind of person who, when he sees something he wants, when he sees something that's going to give him pleasure, he doesn't care if it's living in a body of filth and decadence. That's his marriage. 
He's the kind of person who can kind of look past the decay and the death and the decadence and the wickedness and the corrosion and all of that filth and kind of say, but there's something in there that I want for myself. This is, this is symbolic of the life and soul of Samson, someone who will make himself deeply unclean in order to fill his belly with a momentary pleasure. Do you do this? I'm, I'm rephrase that. How do you do this? Of course we do this. Our culture is not all that different. I want to know, how do you, how do we, but ask it for yourself, how do you make a practice of seeing something you want and blinding yourselves to the fact that it is, its, its habitat is the wickedness of this world? It's going to give you pleasure for a time It tastes good for a time, and you're willing to kind of look past the filth and the decadence and the death that is surrounding it on every side. I hope this does not typify your story. But anyway, Samson tells a riddle about it. He says, out of the, what does he say? I've got to read it again. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. He gives this, this riddle that these people, these 30 friends, uh, wrestle with for three, or, three days or so. Okay. Let's finish up the chapter here. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we'll burn you and your father's household to death. You can see they're not friends. Do you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You're given, you've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me any in the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Her people. Before the sun set on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Which, by the way, sounds as rough in the Hebrew as it does in the English. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to a friend who had attended him at his wedding. So he's swindled. He's cheated out of this riddle, and he is ignited with this anger. I mean, does it, does it seem like a quid pro quo? One's being cheated on this to go down and kill 30 Philistines, strip them of their clothes as, as honest payment. This is, this is Samson. He has this sense of anger, but the odd thing about it is God uses this anger. Is God, was God at work at all when he went down to Ashkelon? Yeah. He's in a fury He goes huffing and puffing down to Ashkelon and the Spirit of God rushes into him and empowers him to slay Philistines. We've got to keep our eye on that. Let's keep reading. 
Let's watch his temper. One through five. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, This time I have the right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks of the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. It's this it's a comic book, right? It's over the top. I mean, and his anger is over the top. He's infused with this anger. And it does appear, by the way, because we're thinking, are they really even married, right? It's the seventh day. They didn't really consummate. No, the text says it's his wife. You'll find out later that even the Philistines seem to behave as though that father-in-law had made a pretty serious mistake. But Samson reacts as though it's a community sin. Like, your community has so little regard for the bride price paid or the ceremony that I sponsored or any of this that you could run off and you give her away? I mean, I, I can identify with the father-in-law. He looked pretty mad. Killed 30 Philistines. You know? And it's so Samson. You know, he goes away. He gets over himself. He remembers how attractive his wife was. And he happened to like her, too, after they visited. And, you know, he's bringing his, like, apology instead of a bouquet of flowers, new goat, down to kind of smooth things over. You know, and then he comes out to find, find this out. And as a result of, the, of kind of the anger, the, the anger of Samson escalates, the kind of epic of revenge escalates, and now he hasn't just killed 30 Philistines, he has destroyed the livelihood of the Philistine town. Let's keep going. Six to eight. When the Philistines who did this, when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned them, her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in the cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah. I'll just read to 13. Spreading out near Lehi, the men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him up with new ropes and led him up from the rock. You see, the, again, the continued escalation. He burns the fields. They burn the wife and father-in-law. He slaughters them viciously. They array an army. 
They go on the offense. They set up, spread out, and in camp in the land of Judah. And then one of the great tragedies of the whole story happens here, which is the tribe of Judah, who is under the oppression of the Philistines, go to their deliverer so that they can deliver him into the hands of their oppressor. Do you see the irony here? The Savior of Israel is hiding in a cave. And the tribe of Israel comes to him and says, look, you're causing us problems. Like, I wonder how often the church has behaved this way at some level or another, where we would just as soon not make ripples in our culture. Like, we would rather be, we, and I'm not saying we necessarily HBC, but how often in the lives of the church and in our, the Western church that we're familiar with, would we prefer to kind of live beneath culture and in mediocrity rather than actually rising up and being faithful? You'd think at this point, if the, if the Judahites knew that Samson was a deliverer, right? He certainly hasn't painted that. He's a brigand who's hiding in a cave. But if they knew that, you would hope at the very least that now they say, is this our time to rise up and to throw off the yoke of our oppressor? But there's at a place right now where they are so culturally sad and sick that they're not looking for a deliverer, and their deliverer is hiding in a cave because he has no purpose. If only Samson were a better man and Judah were better people. This whole section needs quotations around it. I'll read 14 uh, to 20. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. See, that's, that's the comic book. The ropes fall off, and there is a fresh donkey jawbone at his feet. You know, we should talk about the attributes. A fresh donkey jawbone kills way better because it has flexibility. You know? I'm sorry. Uh, but I mean, the text, it, you should... It, you should feel the kind of the enjoyments of the enjoyment of the narrative here. He he strikes down a thousand men, and then Samson says, "With a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I've killed a thousand men." When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi, which means jawbone hill. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. You've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called Enhakori, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. The whole verse 20 should be in quotations. This is what it means for Samson to lead. Now, he strikes down a thousand men with this, this jawbone, and then he, I, it says he says, it's almost as though he sings. You can almost imagine it as a chant, or, you know, he is a bit of a riddler, this, this song. Does this song sound like a great song of deliverance? 
Like when we think of Moses crossing the Red Sea and Moses writes a song of deliverance. Does it sound like this? No, it sounds like praise be to the Lord for his horse and his rider he is hurled into the sea. When Hannah, who's been barren her whole life, gives birth to Samuel, as the Lord had said, and, and she writes a song about it. Does it sound flippant like this? No, she, she praises the God who is her deliverer, is what she says. But when Samson, who is infused by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon and slays, does he identify God in the deliverance that he just experienced? What is this, what's the text say? With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Like even at this point where God has used him mightily in the story, he is, he is either ignorant or hard-hearted about God's use of him. This is about, this is about Samson. Samson's life is about Samson. And you can even see it here in, the, in, in, in his dying of thirst. I mean, it's hard to read this, this conversation, prayer he has to God. It's hard to read it without reading some kind of insolence in it. You have given your servant a great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Has Samson always been worried about the uncircumcised? He was engaged. He was married to the uncircumcised. Didn't his mom and dad say, must you go find a woman among the uncircumcised? And he said, forget it. She's the right one for me. And he headed down, right? All of a sudden, he has this holy unction as he's dying of thirst. This is so us. Where we live a life, we live our life going in our direction chasing after what's before our nose, falling after the smell of honey, looking for things that are, that are beneath us, right? And every now and then, our path intersects the will of God. And then when that happens, we, we come to the Lord as though we're just trying to do his will. You know, here I am. I bring down a meal to Sunday breakfast mission, and I locked myself out of my car, God. Right? This is, that's how we are, though. That's, that's how we behave with God, is we occasionally do what he's asked us to do. And then when we do, we come to him as though great holiness has motivated us towards this. And we, of course, he's obligated now because of our holy path in life to come alongside and salvage us. We do this. Maybe not after a thousand dead men, but we do this. We do this after we, I said I was sorry to her. <laughs> like, what kind of husband am I supposed to be? Right? I went to church on Sunday. But it's because we're weaving back and forth across the will of God. And we occasionally cross his path. And at those moments, then we assume, God, we're in your will. And he's saying, you're not in my will. You're crossing through it. He names the place in Hakore. You know what that means? The caller's spring. God brings water out of the rock, and Samson names it after himself. The caller's spring. I mean, the arrogance. The whole thing makes you wonder. By the way, it's just beautiful in my mind when I see this, and I wonder, why does God do this? I am reminded of how loving God is and that God has a plan. 
And this is, in fact, the big point of the story. Do you remember verse 4? When the narrator pulled the curtain away, he said, Psst, by the way, this is all a big scheme to get Samson involved with the Philistines. His parents don't know that, but you do. Now we're sitting here at the end of the 15th chapter, and it's all fully unfolded itself. Why did Samson kill a thousand men? Because they came after him. The Philistines came after him when he was hiding in the cave of Etam. But why did they come after him in the cave of Etam? Because he viciously slaughtered many of them for the burning of his wife and father-in-law. But why did they burn the wife and the father-in-law? Because he burned their fields with the foxtails tied pair to pair and tied to a torch. But why did he do that to the foxtails? Because they had given his wife to another uncircumcised Philistine, even though he was legally married to him. But why did they do that? Well, because he went down to Eshkelon and killed 30 Philistines in a rage of anger and gave their clothes to everybody. But why did he do that? Because they cheated him out of the riddle. But why is he even in the riddle? Because he's being married. Why is he married? Because he's attracted to this woman. And why is he attracted to the woman? Because God had a plan. You see this? This is one story. This is the story of someone who does God's will on intersection. He's doing what he wants, but he is as much a part of God's riddle as everybody else is a part of his riddle. I'll say it this way. Your life is your life, but it's God's story. You can do whatever you want to do. Okay, Christian, non-Christian, I don't know who you are. You can do whatever you want to do with your life. It's your life. It's your will. It's your life, but it's God's story. And if you think that you're going to circumvent his sovereign power, you're enmeshed in a riddle. God's kingdom will not give way due to its mediocre subjects, right? No matter how mediocre the church is, no matter how sad as people are, no matter how dim the lamp of faith is, no matter what's happening, God's plan is not going to fail because of failed Christians. This is the beauty of God's power, is it's not resting and waiting on our effectiveness. God has won the victory. The victory has been won. We have been given the right through decision to participate in the victory, but God is sovereign. And I know, I know Judges is a comic book, and it's not the place to have a great, deep theological discourse about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, but we're gonna. No, we're, I should say this, but the story of Samson gives us helpful imagery as to how these two relate. It's just helpful. It's not comprehensive. It's not deep and theological, but it's helpful. It's helpful. Like Samson, God doesn't go around transforming uninviting hearts. You hear this? Those of you who would not consider yourself Christian, God is not going to come around and uninvited crash into your soul and flip your heart around. It's not going to happen. If you're waiting for the magic, it's not going to happen because your life is your life. Your decision matters. Choose you this day. Choose life that you might live. Behold, I stand and knock. Repent. Do I desire that the wicked should perish, says the Lord? No. I desire, in fact, that they should repent and turn from their sins. If only they would do that, I would replace their heart of stone with a new heart. That's Scripture. 
Your life is your life. If you're sitting waiting, if you assume God's going to do it all, I'm here to say your decision matters. Free will is God's way of saying your salvation depends on your decision. Not your birth, not your friends, not where you're sitting this morning, not the ordinance here, not the elements of the ordinance or the date you were baptized or how it felt or that one time you felt good about your story. Your life, your situation, your salvation is dependent upon your decision. Sovereignty is God's way of saying mankind's salvation is dependent upon my decision. Free will is your life depends, your salvation depends on your decision. God's sovereignty is the life of mankind. Salvation for mankind is solely dependent upon my decision. The salvation of mankind is not dependent upon what you did or, or some kind of thing you've contributed. It's God who saw the wickedness of man and chose to love and return rather than judge outright. It's God who saw the unfitness of mankind to save themselves and so send his son. It's God himself who got off his throne and crawled down onto earth. He came down onto earth, like down into Philistia, and he lived out the life so that, so that there might actually be one perfect God-man who did, could in fact be worthy to bear the sins of the earth. God did all that. We didn't do that. Our salvation is dependent upon a sovereign God. God doesn't need us for that story. God gave us that story so that we might turn and repent and be healed of our sins. That's what the sovereignty of God is. Free will is your salvation depends on your decision before God. Sovereignty is the salvation of the universe depends on his decision. We make no contribution to the galactic war between good and evil. God has won that through the power of his son. My question this morning is, are you a Christian or are you a Christian? Right? Are you in the will of God or are you intersecting the will of God at a convenient time on Sunday morning at the end of July? As we take communion this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, this is what I would encourage you. I would encourage you first and foremost to be honest before the Lord. Okay, nobody else watches. I know I've been where you are, and I know everybody's always worried about, did someone see how much I put in the offering plate, or someone know if I'm praying too loudly or whatever. Nobody, nobody's looking at you. Right? You're just, everybody's worried about themselves right now. So you just worry about yourself. Be honest before the Lord, which means if you know God, enjoy the forgiveness and the blessing, and just the sacred righteousness that comes from his sovereign work. This is his body and his blood that has been given to you. He's not extracting your body and your blood. He's giving his. And enjoy it. Allow this to be a time of worship and celebration and solemnity. But if, if you are outside the decision, be honest before the Lord. Let it pass. Let this time be an opportunity to reflect. What is the weight of the decision that sits before you? You know, some of you think, well, I haven't made the decision yet. That is a decision, and that's a no. There is not a yes and a no, and I'm waiting to make the decision. We're born no until we yes. 
allow the weight of that just to sit as you observe. And, and you're allowed to pray, even outside of faith, you're allowed to pray, Lord, if you're there, come to me. Lord, if you're there, soften my heart. Lord, I invite you to work. I want you to, I just encourage you to take time to do these things before the Lord as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together.